We begin this episode with a special breaking news announcement. At 12.10 p.m. Pacific Time, on the afternoon of this episode's release, September 14, 2021, 560 days after the trial began, Judge Mark Windham gave the case of the people of California versus Robert Durst for the special circumstances homicide of Susan Berman to the trial's jury to begin their deliberation towards a verdict. The jury will deliberate this afternoon and, if necessary, tomorrow afternoon. Thursday is a court holiday, and jury deliberations will resume on Friday again, if necessary. In the meantime, the episode that you are about to hear presents a summary of the conclusion of the prosecution's closing argument, as well as Dick DeGuerin's portion of the defense team's closing. The following episode will cover David Chesnoff's part of the defense closing, Prosecutor John Lewin's rebuttal argument, and a summary of Judge Wyndham's instructions to the jury. In the meantime, make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed, as we will bring you breaking news as soon as there is a verdict or any other news from the jury room. We also plan to bring you interviews with any jurors and or trial witnesses who agree to talk to us after a verdict is rendered. So stay tuned to Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst for all the latest news. Now, the problem with details is this. The more details you have, the harder it is to lie because you have so many details, you have to keep track of them so that they don't contradict each other. And he waited and he watched and he was allowed entry into her home and she trusted him, so she turned her back on him, and in exchange, she got a bullet to the back of the head, executed on her own bedroom floor in her own home. Nine days of beating up of a sick old man that can't defend himself. Calculated to cause you to hate him. But she was six years old when her mom and her dad died. Six years old. You don't get the code of the mafia when you're six years old. The court has given Mr. DeGuerin slack, whether because he's 80 or he's a Texas lawyer, etc. But your honor, people earn respect. When Mr. DeGuerin pulls these kind of shenanigans, he gets the respect he's entitled to, which is not much. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Thursday, September 9th, Ethan Milius and Habib Balian wrapped up closing arguments for the prosecution, and Dick DeGuerin commenced closing arguments for the defense. The back-to-back presentations displayed a stark contrast between the opposing attorneys. While the people appealed to the jury with a rapid-fire display of facts and evidence, DeGuerin sought sympathy for his elderly client and portrayed the court's rulings in the trial as highly prejudicial against Robert Durst. In this episode, we're going to explore both the prosecution's and defense's arguments, as well as the fireworks that erupted between the parties once the jury left the courtroom. It was a dynamic day of proceedings that included film references, meticulous analysis, and blistering accusations of attorney misconduct. You'll hear all of the most compelling moments from the highly dramatic to the legally significant and everything in between. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Deputy District Attorney Ethan Milius began the day by reminding the jury of the difference between using evidence to support testimony and weaving a story to account for evidence. Okay, one of the things uh, that I talked about is whether or not evidence supports what your testimony is. So, for example, if a week from now somebody says, hey, Ethan, on this particular date, we're accusing you of having committed a murder at this particular time. It's uh, like 925. Well, obviously all of you, everyone in here would be a witness, an independent witness, independent of anything I said. And there's video evidence of it. It would say, hey, yeah, clearly I did not commit the murder at that time because I'm here. But that's very different than someone who weaves a story to account for evidence against them, right? And there's a distinction between the two. And let me give you an example. In opening statement, Mr. Lewin talked about the importance of cell phone data, right? And what we basically said is that Durst turned off his cell phone when he came to California. He did not use his cell phone at all so that there would be no evidence tracking him from going from Northern California down to Southern California. And the motivation there is very obvious. Like he didn't want to be traced to Southern California where he was going to kill Susan. And there were cell phone logs that basically say that. And that was all introduced in opening. And having seen that, when Durst testified, he said, on the flight from San Francisco, I misplaced my cell phone. So basically, he said he accounted for that lack of cell phone use by saying that the cell phone was misplaced. Now, if anybody said to you, hey, that confirms the story, that the physical evidence, the, the independent evidence confirms the story, that's not what it's doing. He's actually listening to the evidence and changing his story or you know, creating a, a story to account for that evidence. They're entirely different things. The example that I gave with me with independent evidence and creating a story to account for the evidence. And that's important because this is not trial by surprise. What we have, the prosecution has, the defense gets. Now, in terms of preparing for trial in Galveston, I'll talk to you about the BD story. And the BD story is basically a script. And Durst ends up being the actor. Now, he talked a lot about how there's a debate of whether or not he wrote it or someone else wrote it. But if you look at the document, it was clearly created in anticipation of trial. The language in it, if you look at it, like the DA knows that on 8.30.01, I bought the 22 pistol in Pasadena. It's saying, this is the physical evidence out there. This is the independent evidence. And this story has to account for that physical evidence, that independent evidence, in order to make it make sense. And there are countless examples throughout the BD story of language like that. The DA knows this, the DA knows this. As I said, it's basically a script. Now, a little bit about telling a story. Quentin Tarantino uh, is a film writer and director. I love film and television, so I'm gonna spend a little time talking about that. Started his career, uh, with a movie called Reservoir Dogs, and it's brilliant. 
It's also very violent. So if you're not into violence, don't watch it. But there is a scene in it that is super famous and it's taught in almost every film writing class. And it's called The Commode Story. And the premise of the story is essentially this. Tim Roth is an undercover officer. And he's tasked with infiltrating a robbery crew. And his handler, he tells Tim Roth, he says, look, in order for you to get in with this crew, you have to tell a story. You have to essentially tell a lie. And what his handler says is you need to have this story. And the story is all about the details. It's the details that sell the story. And that's why I'm reminded of Durst taking a stand and testifying, is that the way he lies is he has vivid details and lots of them. It, it makes it come to life and it almost makes it seem real, but almost. Now, the problem with details is this. The more details you have, the harder it is to lie because you have so many details, you have to keep track of them so that they don't contradict each other. The other issue with details, eventually those details will come in conflict with independent evidence, like we talked about. And the classic example in this case is Susan's day planner. If the story had just been, look, I went out and surprise visit to Susan and I came back. Without all these details, it wouldn't have been contradicted by that day planner. So the very thing that makes his story more interesting or more lifelike is the very thing that makes it more dangerous in terms of being undermined, is the details. Milius went on to articulate the contradictions in Durst's detailed story about the day Morris Black died. One of the things that Durst says is that when he went for that walk, starting off uh, at the temple and then jogging to the apartment to start off this day, that he left his cell phone in his car. Now, there's so many things about that that are ridiculous. Anybody who is a cyclist or a jogger or runner or anything, the idea that you would drive to a location a half a mile or a mile away from your house and then run to your apartment or jog to your apartment and then jog and presumably stay in the apartment sweaty, do whatever you're gonna do in the apartment and then run back to your car makes zero sense. You can go for a jog, you park in front of your apartment and you go for a jog to some location, then jog back. Like that doesn't make any sense. And the only reason why you have that there it's just an excuse to say, I wasn't able to call 911 with my cell phone because I left it somewhere else. And if that sounds familiar, it is, because that's literally the same thing he said with Susan Berman. I lost my phone, I wanted to call 911, but I couldn't. Now, is there another explanation as to why he wouldn't have his cell phone on that particular day? Yeah. And why you would actually park at the temple? far away from the location? Well, that explanation would be this. You didn't want your car in front of the apartment because you knew you were gonna kill Morris Black and you didn't want anything associated with you to be tied to that apartment. Same thing applies to the cell phone. You don't wanna bring your cell phone to a crime scene because you could be tracked by your cell phone to that crime scene. So you wanna leave your phone as far away from the crime scene as possible. Now, if that is true as well, you probably also want to be seen somewhere far away from the crime scene, like, say, a hotel ordering room service on the day you killed your friend and getting a haircut on the uh, afternoon after you've killed your friend. These are things you would do if you wanted as many people to see you and be able to say, yeah, I was not here when Morris was killed somewhere else. 
After Ethan Milius finished his discussion of the evidence in Galveston, he handed back the presentation to Deputy DA Habib Balian. It's very clear from Mr. Milius's presentation that after the Galveston trial, Mr. Durst, the defendant in this case, pulled out his book on how to get away with murder. He opened it up and he added another entry. Watch, wait, see what the evidence is, and don't be afraid to swap your lies when necessary and change your story. And that's how he has learned to get away with murder. Let's go back to Susan Berman. With the prosecution having covered the alleged murders of Kathy Durst and Morris Black, Balian turned to the evidence discovered at the scene of the crime for which Durst stands trial, Susan Berman's home on Benedict Canyon Drive. Can we learn something from the physical evidence? Absolutely. The physical evidence proves a great deal to you you jurors. There was no evidence of ransacking. There was no signs of a struggle. Nothing was taken from the home. The computer was there. Items of value were there. Her purse was left, lift, left on the kitchen counter with credit cards, cash inside, ID inside. This wasn't a burglary. This wasn't a robbery. What the proof is beyond any reasonable doubt is that whoever entered this home intended to kill Susan Berman. This was planned. This was premeditated. Whoever entered that home wasn't going there to take something. They were there to execute her. No forced entry. No signs of forced entry. Windows locked. Screens are in place. What does the evidence from the crime scene prove? Susan knew her killer and led him into the house. We know from Dr. Fajardo that at the time the gun was fired, it was within an inch of the back of her head, a straight shot from behind. We know from Dr. Fajardo that Susan was shot from behind. There was no defensive wounds, no signs of a struggle, no evidence whatsoever that Susan knew she was about to be executed. This was an execution. Susan trusted the killer and turned her back to him. The killer hid his true intentions and waited for the opportune moment to strike. That's lying in wait. It can happen in seconds. It can happen in minutes. But you wait and you watch for your opportune moment to strike. And he waited and he watched and he was allowed entry into her home and she trusted him, so she turned her back on him, and in exchange, she got a bullet to the back of the head, executed on her own bedroom floor in her own home. We also know more from the physical evidence. We know that the killer wanted Susan's body to be found. This letter, this note, this envelope, this is physical evidence. It's the defendant's writing. It was clearly sent by the killer as Susan's body had not yet been discovered. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. I cannot emphasize this enough. You can ignore everything else in this case. 
And if we spent one day trying this case to you, here's what you would have. You'd have a note sent by the killer that only the killer could have written, that the defendant has admitted only the killer to wrote, and the defendant has stipulated, I wrote the cadaver note and envelope that only the killer could have written. That alone is proof beyond a reasonable doubt without anything more. You have lots more. Balian then proceeded to present the jury with Nick Chavin's revelatory testimony, an apparent admission by Durst to Chavin that he killed Susan Berman. Imagine how hard this was for Mr. Chavin. His best friend killed his other best friend. And here comes two prosecutors, and this has been held down within him. He didn't even want to believe it himself for years. And Nick came into court. He still cares for the defendant. You saw him. You saw his raw emotion. You saw how hard it was for him to tell you what his best friend admitted he did to his other best friend. It was clear he still has feelings for the defendant. He has no reason then to make this up. But he came into court, and what did he say? The dinner concluded, and it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. Uh, we walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy. And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. Those nine words sum up this entire case. I told you when we began that please don't confuse the length of this trial with the difficulty of this trial. This trial was easy. This trial is logical. It's supported by evidence. It makes common sense. The overwhelming evidence in this case has proven to you beyond any reasonable doubt that Robert Durst is responsible for the disappearance and death of his wife, Kathy. The overwhelming evidence has proven to you beyond any reasonable doubt that he deliberately lied to investigators, ensuring that he would avoid responsibility for his conduct. The overwhelming evidence in this case has proven to you beyond any reasonable doubt that he murdered his best friend, Susan Berman, who had helped him cover up the killing of his wife the overwhelming evidence has proven to you, beyond any reasonable doubt, that he murdered his best friend, Morris Black, to silence him. He dismembered his corpse and dumped the body parts into trash bags in Galveston Bay. With that stomach-churning image, Balian concluded the prosecution's closing, and Dick DeGuerin rose to give closing arguments for the defense. Roaches in the soup. Really? Body parts? Nine days of beating up of a sick old man that can't defend himself. Calculated to cause you to hate him. I wouldn't blame you after seeing what you've seen in this courtroom for hating Bob Durst. I don't. 
I've known him for 20 years, and I am proud. I am proud to stand before you and defend Robert Durst when almost no one in the world would do so but me and my small team. If you recall a year and a half ago when we started this, not knowing what our fates held for us, we asked you then to pay attention to what we thought was going to be a four-month ordeal that's now turned into a year and a half. You didn't sign up for it, but you didn't have much choice. And thank you for being here. But I wouldn't blame you after hearing what you heard if you hate Bob Durst and believe he's a liar. But making Bob Durst a liar does not make him a killer. They have to bring evidence, whether it's direct evidence or circumstantial evidence, and there's no direct evidence. This case is about Susan. John, objection. That misstates the evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, the attorneys in making these arguments, you are commenting on the testimony you heard, then the evidence that was presented in this case, they're remembering the evidence as it was presented. If their recollection of what the evidence is differs from your recollection, you must follow your own recollection. These arguments are not construed as evidence in the case or instructions on the law. You may continue, Mr. DeGarren. This is a circumstantial evidence case. And the court tells you that if the circumstantial evidence leads you to more than one conclusion, only one of which is guilt, you must find the accused not guilty. This case is supposed to be about Susan Berman, but we heard months and months of evidence about a case in Galveston in which I represented Bob Durst, in which 12 good citizens found him not guilty on more evidence that you, than you heard here. You've heard only part of the evidence in Galveston. The prosecution set its own goal. Mr. Balian said it pretty succinctly yesterday. What they must prove to you is that Bob Durst killed Kathy Durst and Susan Berman made the call to the dean. And unless they prove that to you, their case is over. So I want to talk to you first about how I first came into the case and what, as the evidence shows, we found and what we presented in Galveston. In my opinion, based on the evidence, Galveston shouldn't be in this case. In my opinion, it's here to prejudice you. Simple. That's an improper argument. My opinion from the evidence is it's here to prejudice you. It's a terrible case. It's terrible what Bob did to Morris Black's body. And those pictures are awful. Some of you couldn't look at them. They're that bad. But what we had in Galveston was a jury that was intelligent enough, intellectual enough, to realize and to separate what happened to Morris Black's body after he was dead from the manner in which he died. I'm sure it wasn't easy. It's not easy for you. But the truth is, nothing that Bob Durst did to Morris Black's body after Morris Black was dead could change how Morris Black died. And the evidence was clear in Galveston that Morris Black died from a single accidental gunshot 
to the head after a struggle over the gun. There was tons of evidence. There was so much evidence, and you can see it in some of the little tags on the evidence that are in, in evidence before you, that the evidence numbers ran into the multiple hundreds Your Honor, of pieces of evidence. Your Honor, we need no. a sidebar. No, 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 we not have a sidebar, but I will sustain. <clears throat> you may argue the evidence, but you may not argue that. Ms. Well, there would in fact be a very intense and substantive sidebar conversation after the jury left for the day. And we will follow up on that later in this episode. But with that mild admonishment, Judge Wyndham allowed DeGarren to continue his argument. I want to make clear what I'm saying. In the evidence that you've seen, there are tags on many of the pieces of evidence. Each one of those tags are numbered, and they're in the hundreds. Really what's happened here is the prosecution has tried to get a do-over of that trial. They even called the same blood spatter expert, in my opinion, it's junk science, and Mr. Bevel testified here that he hadn't seen the reenactment or the, the video, but animation, thank you. He said he hadn't seen it during the trial uh, because they didn't call him back, the prosecution didn't call him back. And Mr. Bailey, and I believe it was, asked him, well, did the uh, defense ask you to look at it again? Well, no, we didn't ask him to look at it again. He said he looked at it again, and he emailed, if you remember this, he emailed Mr. Lewin saying that it was consistent. Now, he backtracked on the witness stand, but he couldn't backtrack out of that email. And yet here we are trying the case again. <coughs> Different standard of proof, as the judge tells you. It's a preponderance of the evidence. But there is no place on the verdict form for you to find Bob Durst guilty of murdering Morris Black. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. DeGarren then transitioned to the subject of Bob's first alleged victim, his wife, Kathy. I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> Bob's relationship with Kathy. What we do know and what everybody agrees is that with Bob and Kathy, it was a deep love from the very first moment. They made an agreement before they were married that they were not to have children. Why? Because Bob said, my childhood was such a disaster, I don't want to bring any kids. She agreed at first. And I know that abortion is such a hot button issue that it may offend many of you. Remember, this was the late 70s when this occurred. And so Kathy, after finding that she was pregnant, had an abortion. They had agreed to it. She, it, it their relationship <clears throat> was never the same again, but they continued to live together, they continued to love each other, 
No divorce was ever filed. They tried to live together. And that was the situation when Kathy disappeared. Now, please don't get the idea that we're trying to trash Kathy, but the plain facts are even Jimmy McCormick, her brother, when he testified, said that the family was worried about her and cocaine. Cocaine is a terrible drug. People can easily overdo it. It's not just a recreational drug. Here in California, marijuana is now, you can buy it. There, there are airplanes flying around advertising. They'll deliver to your door. But that's not cocaine. Dr. Wilk testified. You remember, he's the guy that said, well, Kathy came to him and she was shaking and she was scared. But he also testified that Kathy told him that she was missing some classes due to taking therapy. Remember, Mr. Lewin made a big deal about Bob lying about Kathy doing drug therapy. But Dr. Wilk said Kathy told him that she was missing some classes because of therapy. And, you know, the, pro the prosecution has proved that Bob's treatment of Kathy was atrocious. We told you in jury selection there would be evidence of domestic violence. That's the way it is. But there's been a lot of domestic violence and not a lot of killings. After conceding his client's domestic violence against his wife, Kathy, a concession to which that very same client, Robert Durst, had weeks earlier stood and personally objected, DeGuerin moved on to what he sees as the genesis of Durst's current trial. Why are we here? Well, I think a pretty good argument could be made that we're here because of Mr. Jarecki and the jinx. Let's look at the evidence about how that happened. I thought it was quite telling when agent, FBI agent Eric Perry, agent Perry testified that he got a call from someone that he knew as an ex-FBI agent. That ex-FBI agent had gone to work for Douglas Durst. A cushy job, as agent Perry acknowledged. He worked for Douglas Durst and <clears throat> he was asked to contact Perry to see if he could make a threat assessment. By the way, as far as Douglas Durst is concerned, we know, the evidence is clear, that Bob Durst was free from all of everything that happened in Galveston after 2005. He was on the street, he was a free man, until he was arrested in 2015. Ten years with not a thing happening to Douglas Durst, or Gilberta Najami, for that matter. And so Agent Perry started digging, and uh, he talked to an author named Matt Birkbeck, who'd written a book about Bob Durst, who told him that Jarecki and Smirling had been working on the Bob Durst case and had 20 to 40 hours worth of interviews of Bob Durst. So Perry contacts Jarecki. Sure enough, they've got all these recordings of Bob Durst. And so Perry then decides to contact the LADA's office. That's how the case got here. But there's a little disconnect here because Jarecki had all of Bob's recordings by 2012. There was a two-year gap between when Jarecki turned it over to the LADA's office and Mr. 
Lewin took it over. Two years. That's how we got here. Next, Dick DeGaron presented the jury with an explanation of why Susan might lie about providing Robert Durst with an alibi. A lot of the people that knew Susan well said that she was a fabulist. That's my word, but that puts it together. She made up stories, and she made up different stories, different things heard by different people. Susan always wanted to make herself appear more important. When Kathy went missing, she became Bob's PR spokesperson because she had experience and she knew people in the business. But she wanted to make herself seem more important, and so she built up her importance in all that. But others said, well, you know, Susan would never blackmail anybody. Susan would never talk because she lived by the code of the mafia. It's uncontested that Susan's father was a mafia guy. He took over from Bugsy Siegel. Oh boy, now that's that's really the stuff of novels. And the stuff of memoirs, by the way, that Susan wrote. But she was six years old when her mom and her dad died. Six years old. You don't get the code of the mafia when you're six years old. Having outlined the defense's position on Durst's relationship with both Kathy and Susan, DeGaron completed his portion of the closing argument with an appeal to jurors to stick to their guns if they have reasonable doubt. If you have questions about how, when, where Kathy Durst died, the prosecution hasn't proved their theory. If you have questions about whether Susan Berman made the call then the state hasn't proved their case. The pro- people, I'm sorry, out here they use the appellation, the people. Well, we're the people, you're the people. So I have difficulty with, with that. I prefer to use the state because the state seems to me is all powerful. And as I tell my students, it is an honorable profession to represent the citizen accused against the power of the state. And if you have those questions and the evidence doesn't answer it for you, or if <clears throat> you come to two or more reasonable conclusions about where the circumstantial evidence leads you, you have to say not guilty. Whether you like Bob Durst or hate him, whether you think he's a bad person or a liar, your duty is to say not guilty. and. It's your duty, if that's the way you feel, to maintain that, not to compromise. You will remember your verdict in this case. You may forget me. You may forget Mr. Lewin. You may forget the judge. But you will not forget your verdict. And particularly, if you surrender a reasonable doubt that you have just to get a verdict, you won't be able to live with yourself. Stick by your guns. We'll be here and we'll be with you, no matter how long it takes. The judge tells you a verdict must be unanimous, but the judge doesn't tell you that you have to reach a verdict. 
Once the jurors left the courtroom, the tenor shifted as Lewin rose from his seat and passionately addressed the court regarding Dick DeGaran's conduct and misstatements of evidence. There is argument that is absolutely unethical and unprofessional. Number one, you cannot legally stand up and say, quote, there is a bunch of evidence from Galveston that you did not hear. That is per se misconduct. If a yeah, prosecutor right. did that. Okay, calm down, Mr. Mr. Stop shouting. Stop shouting. Stop shouting. It is not appropriate in the court for you to be shouting. It, you, well, I'm trying to I am no, I am I am addressing your tone, which is not appropriate. I sustain the objection. I agree with you. Mr. Garen, do you have anything to say about that? Well, it's obvious that, that they didn't hear all the evidence. I mean that's that's in the evidence that they only heard Part of what the evidence was. Yeah, it was not a proper argument, and I did sustain the objection. Maybe you didn't hear me sustain the objection. And what I saw Mr. DeGaran do was perhaps in a face-saving way, he rephrased his argument and said, there are lots of exhibit exhibits, they're numbered to 200, and then he described what they were and pointed to evidence that was received in the case. What he began to do, what he actually said was that there is evidence that you didn't hear, leaving aside the idea that there was nothing stopping Mr. DeGaran from presenting it. It was improper. I sustain the objection. But you can rest assured you'll have an argument and you'll have an opportunity to give the last word in this series of arguments. So I agree with you, Mr. Lewin, but I am not feeling as reactive as you to this indiscretion by Mr. DeGaran. Well, let me finish, Your Honor, because that's only the first. Give me your argument. I will listen. If I stood up and I for a second said, there is evidence that I know that you did not hear, I would be dressed down, I'd be reported to the bar because it's misconduct. The man got up there, and these are the three things he said. He says, number one, that there is evidence you did not hear from Galveston. He then had the nerve, and, and it is just the worst thing I've heard in an argument in my 30 years. He said, let me get this right, quote, Galveston is here to prejudice you, and I believe that evidence should not have been admitted in this case. That is per se, number one, he is saying that the court erred in admitting evidence, which is improper. Number two, he is saying that the court and apparently counsel that we admitted that evidence to prejudice the jury. I objected, Your Honor, and it was overruled. And I'll just ask the court, what would you have done if I would have said something half that way? You would have been irate with purpose and with reason. I don't, I don't get irate. So, Your Honor, Your Honor. No, no, listen, Mr. That's beyond misconduct. Mr. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. What are we doing? I, I don't know what, Mr. Chesnoff, I don't, no, thank you. All right. I mean, there's, there's no question that this evidence, it is not unduly prejudicial. It is lawfully admitted. But I, I had to weigh that evidence to make that determination. One might reach a different conclusion and say, this is prejudicial. Indeed, it is prejudicial. It should not have been put that way, but I don't think it's so egregious that I needed to stop those proceedings and interrupt the flow of Mr. DeGaran's attempt. Your Honor, it's an improper argument. And listen, let's be clear. You want to play, I'm a, just a small time caveman lawyer, that's fine, etc. You're going to get it back on rebuttal. We got a multimillionaire who's had seven lawyers shuttling in and out of court. That's fine. But when he says, Your Honor, and this is the third thing, there is no direct evidence in this case. That is a lie. He can say if he wants to, the direct evidence is not credible. 
He can say that. He cannot say there's no direct evidence in this case. That is a misstatement. It's untrue. Whether Mr. Guerin is negligent or he got up there and he just said what he wanted, regardless of the consequences, I don't know. But no one, I don't think the court's going to tell me that that is a true statement of the status of this case. Yeah, this is, of course, it's false, and, and, and you'll, have, you'll uh, make hay with it. Uh, what we're going to ask the court to do, Your Honor, is to instruct the jury. So I'll write out the, what we're going to request on instruction, but Your Honor, it is not a cure for the court to simply say, oh, don't worry, Mr. Lewin, you can clean it up. It was, Your Honor, it was, and the court's aware, it was unethical, it was unprofessional, and it's wrong. I wish that the court would just say the following. We've been here for five months. You've made rulings. There have been many rulings that you know I've disagreed with, but I don't scream and yell that somehow it's like unethical or improper. And I also wish, after five months, that Mr. Lewin would give the respect to Mr. DeGarren that he deserves as an octogenarian practitioner at the highest levels. Yeah. Because <clears throat> so, so I'm, I'm really, really tired of it. It's really, really okay. tall. Okay, the court, don't address him. The, the, okay, I think you're out the door because you got your, your honor. Your the, I'm ready to go, Your Honor. Your Honor, I'm your excuse, I, I, I have, as the court is aware, I am prepared. <clears throat> I never have mentioned anything in front of the jury to criticize any ruling the court has done. I've not done, they've done this repeatedly. The court has given Mr. DeGaran slack, whether because he's 80 or he's a Texas lawyer, etc. But Your Honor, people earn respect. When Mr. DeGaran pulls these kind of shenanigans, he gets the respect he's entitled to, which is not much. With that searing exchange, the proceedings ended for the day, with David Chesnoff poised to finish the defense's closing arguments on Monday, September 13th. Joining us, as has become our custom, is Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Thank you, Carrie. So, Charlie, the day began with Ethan Milius picking up where he left off yesterday and then Habib Balian finishing the prosecution's closing argument. What did you make of the prosecution's performance this morning? Well, I thought Ethan was terrific today. He was dealing exclusively with Galveston. And I think that's arguably one of the more difficult items. After all, Bob Durst was acquitted of murder in Galveston. And I thought he laid out a a really careful, considered takedown of what happened in Galveston. Bob is such a good storyteller. He weaves in so many very elaborate details to the story. But as he said, the problem with these tales is this. The more details, the harder it is to keep track of the lies. And one by one, he took apart the lies that he said Bob told in Galveston. And I I think he pointed out something that I found interesting, and that was that with Morris, as with Susan, Bob says he tried to call 911, but alas, he didn't have his phone. So what did he do? He went on the run. It becomes very striking about the similarities between the stories that Bob tells. I agree. And I especially liked the section where Ethan Milius demonstrated how Bob essentially scripted what his story would be 
in the BD story and then compared that to his testimony in Galveston. And driving to the synagogue as a way to explain away why he didn't have his phone on him in order to call 911 is just one example. But he went through all of those weird little details and showed how each one of them had a reason, whether it gave him an alibi or explained some incongruity. But when you think about the story he's telling, it really doesn't make sense. I agree. I thought Mr. Milius was terrific. And a word of personal privilege here. Ethan Milius is the son of famed Hollywood screenwriter John Milius, who is credited for writing the first two Dirty Harry films, as well as Apocalypse Now and Conan the Barbarian. He also did a lot of uncredited screenwriting, including one of the most famous scenes in film history, the famous scar comparison scene from Jaws. And I encountered Mr. Milius early in my career when I worked on the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now called Hearts of Darkness. And if you watch that film, John Milius is the heart and soul of it. He is so funny and so engaged and passionate about how Francis Coppola made that film and willed that film into existence. That maybe explains why he referenced another screenwriter in order to make his point about why Bob would include so many details in his testimony. He quoted the movie Reservoir Dogs. He said, now the thing you got to remember are the details. The details sell the story. Absolutely. Now let's move on to Habib Balian's presentation that followed. I thought you were prescient yesterday, Charlie, when you zeroed in on the theme of Balian's closing argument, which is the statement that Nick Chavin claims Bob Durst made to him that fateful evening in Harlem back in 2014. What did you make of the final chapters of Prosecutor Balian's closing argument? I thought he did a great job in laying out, both with clips and with evidence, exactly what happened and what the flaws were in the story that Bob has told us. Yes. And I think that that playbook that he showed early on that defined Bob's M.O. was very impactful. And he brought it all together at the end with a slide. And I took a screen grab of the slide in the feed today. Who had the motive to kill Susan? Who had the opportunity and plan to kill Susan? Who does the crime scene evidence point to? Who believed that Susan was about to rat him out to the police? Who kills witnesses when necessary? Who traveled to Los Angeles, staying in Beverly Hills at the time Susan was killed and later lied about it? Who fled California immediately after Susan was killed? Who wrote a note only the killer could have written? Who fled when the incriminating evidence came out? Money, disguise, map, and gun in hand. Who admitted he killed Susan multiple times? And there are a series of arrows pointing from those statements on the slide, and they all point to a picture of Robert Durst. I thought it was a really effective way of tying it all together, Charlie. I agree. When you've gone through what is now almost four months of very detailed testimony and evidence to finally get a narrative that puts things together. And he also laid out basically all the questions that the defense team has got to address. Right. And speaking of the defense, Charlie, what did you think of Dick DeGaron's closing argument in the afternoon? Well, I I guess the first thing that grabbed my attention was that when uh, Mr. DeGaron said, this is a circumstantial case. And I thought, well, wait a minute. It's far more than a simple circumstantial case. 
I mean, his client admitted he was at the crime scene. I mean, after 20 years of denying that he was even in Los Angeles, he suddenly turns around and says, yeah, I was there. Not only was I there, but I came upon her lifeless body, and then I wrote the note. There's a more to it than simple circumstantial evidence. Secondly, there is also the most important witness, and that is Nick Chavin. You know, Charlie, I want to talk a bit about a number of misstatements of fact, misstatements of evidence that Dick DeGuerin made. One that popped out at me, and it's a relatively mild one, but he said that when Bob Durst said that Kathy went to Lenox Hill Hospital, that he just said she went for some sort of psychological treatment. He didn't say she went into drug rehab. Well, in fact, Robert Durst absolutely did say she was in a drug treatment program at Lenox Hill. What were some of the other misstatements of fact that you heard DeGaron make? Well, in no particular order, he misstated Tom Bevel's testimony regarding the crime scene in Galveston. Bevel's testimony was that the animation is inconsistent with the evidence found in Bob's apartment in Galveston. He emphasized that it was two years after Jarecki had interviewed Bob Durst in 2012 that they finally went to law enforcement. Well, that's just not true. It was 10 months between the last interview with Bob Durst and the first conversation with John Lewin. Another thing, he said that Susan was only six years old when her mother and father died. Well, Susan was actually 12 when her father died and 13 when her mother died. Another point, he said that Durst was a free man between 2005 and 2015. Again, au contraire. In 2006, when Bob was settling with his family for a $65 million payout, Bob was in jail on a parole violation. And then to top it off, he talked about Kathy agreed to an abortion, yet at the same time, their relationship went downhill. Well, Kathy was told, if you want to have that kid, I'm going to divorce you. This was not a happy moment. This was not something that she, quote, agreed to. She was coerced into doing that. It's interesting that Mr. DeGaron took the tact of acknowledging that Bob is a liar. There is a line in the jury instructions which says, if you decide that a witness deliberately lied about something significant in the case, you should consider not believing anything the witness says. Or if you think that the witness lied about some things but told the truth about others, you may simply accept the part that you think is true and ignore the rest. It it was interesting that Mr. Balian, the prosecutor, in his statement, he said that Bob is not a pathological liar. He lies specifically to protect himself. He lies when he's cornered. I think it was an interesting distinction that he made because otherwise, why believe anything that Bob said? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that DeGaron also seemed to acknowledge that Bob abused Kathy. And Bob spent so much of his time denying that he was an abuser. They were so frequently at odds in their approaches to the narrative that it was really confounding. Yeah, it really read to me like you can tell that they're not 
quite on the same team anymore, but Daguerrean is still trying to do his job to the best of his ability. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder when Daguerrean is doing the job, as you say, Brittany, to the best of his ability, whether he is flouting the rules or whether he is really unaware of the rules. Charlie, do you think Daguerrean was doing sort of an aw shucks country bumpkin lawyer act there? Or do you think he genuinely didn't know that what he was doing was wrong? I think if if he was coaching a football team, he knows that they're behind by three touchdowns with only two minutes to go. I think he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. He's even trying to spark some sympathy uh, for Bob. I'm not sure who that appeal is to, who would suddenly become sympathetic. But I think the most telling moment comes at the very end when he's basically reaching out for that juror who might have a little bit of doubt that the prosecution proved its case, and he's hoping that they'll stick to their guns as he urged them and and basically fail to reach a unanimous verdict. So at the very end of the day, Charlie, during Dick DeGaron's part of the defense closing, John Lewin, for the most part, was uncharacteristically quiet and did not object very much, even though a number of the instances that we just discussed might have provoked an objection. But towards the very end of the day, Lewin got very animated, objected three times. The first two times the judge overruled him, and then the third time the judge sustained him. Then after court, there was a very intense hearing about those objections. Charlie, Tell us what was going on there. You know, as soon as the jury left the room, John Lewin was seething. And the judge urged Lewin to take it easy and sit down. Uh, but he was furious that DeGaron had done something that no lawyer is supposed to do in the courtroom. And that is to tell the jury that he's seen evidence that they haven't been allowed to view. This is an attack, he said, not only on the prosecution, but on the judge himself for his rulings. And this was what Lewin said was highly unethical. Uh, And that's before he got to a long list of uh, what he said were misstatements about evidence in the case. And there were a couple of things that were notable to me about that. Number one, Lewin used the phrase small-time caveman lawyer. We're going to play a clip of exactly what he said there. Let's be clear. You want to play I'm just a small-time caveman lawyer? That's fine. You're going to get it back on rebuttal. we got a multimillionaire who's had seven lawyers shuttling in and out of court. That's fine. But when he says, Your Honor, there is no direct evidence in this case. That is a lie. In that moment, Lewin, I think, was making reference to a Saturday Night Live skit from either the 80s or the 90s, where Phil Hartman is made up as a Neanderthal in a suit as a lawyer. And in order to ingratiate himself with the jury, he emphasizes his naivete. Here's a quote from that skit that I dug up. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm just a caveman. I fell in some ice and later got thought out by some of your scientists. Your world frightens and confuses me. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, do little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. But after pointing out this aw shucks, phony naivete, 
Lewin then went on to object to what he asserted was serious misconduct by DeGarren in suggesting to the jury that the judge had improperly allowed them to hear prejudicial evidence and that he knew of evidence that the jury hadn't heard. And when Lewin pointed this out, Dick DeGarren was very sheepish. He didn't have a lot to say. The only person on the other side of the aisle that had something to say was David Chesnoff. And the thing that really stuck out about his comments were that they were made with Chesnoff's bag over his shoulder like he was late for a flight, probably was running to catch a flight back for the weekend to go home to Las Vegas. Yeah, you're probably right. It did strike me as so oddly casual of him. I mean, after Lewin goes off on this very well-worded tirade, Chesnoff interjects with, Your Honor, what are we even doing? And Judge Wyndham, who is typically conducting a masterclass in keeping one's cool, starts to respond and then just holds his hands up and says, Mr. Chesnoff, no thank you. Yeah, but I, I have to say, to my understanding of the rules of criminal procedure, DeGarren was way out of line in what he did. Oh, yeah. Lewin often seems to get animated in his responses when the jury leaves the room, but this one seemed different. Like, he knew DeGarren had done something pretty bad, and he believed that DeGarren did it on purpose. Absolutely. Lewin was really angry, like, in a way that I haven't seen before. And I expect that when he does cleanup next week, we'll hear a lot more about that. Yes. And I think the pattern that's formed here is that John Lewin will cite an error by the judge or help the judge see more clarity in his interpretation of rules of evidence or rules of procedure. And the judge will do cleanup in the following session. I think this judge is very conscious of appellate rulings. I think he's very conscious of how he's perceived as being fair as a matter of equity, but also very rigorous in his legal analysis. And my hunch is that the judge will come out with a very stern ruling when we congregate again next week for the remainder of the defense closing and for John Lewin's rebuttal. Well, Charlie, thanks again for joining us. And we look forward to having everyone back for the final pieces of this puzzle as the trial of Robert Durst comes to a close. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Nota Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. 
It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notovartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.